Thank you so much for listening. Before we get to the show, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe, to rate, review this show, depending on which platform you listen on. We have so many amazing conversations and great guests lined up in the following weeks. And if you'd like to get involved in this conversation, please follow us on social media. You can find me on Facebook at Landry Miller or on Twitter and Instagram at Landry for Tulsa. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Today, we're going to be talking about the Oklahoma foster care and adoption system. Um, This is something that not a lot of people know anything about. I didn't know anything going into this conversation, but luckily my guest um, was able to fill me in on this. Uh, She's worked for the Oklahoma Department of Human Services and uh, Child Welfare Division since 2011. So she knows what she's talking about, and she has a lot of information uh, to share with us. Um, Before we get to that, though, I'd like to fill you in on the last month of my life because we haven't had any episodes for a month, and I'd like to tell you why. So this episode was actually supposed to come out a month ago. It was supposed to come out the Tuesday after the election, uh, which would have been November 10th. And on the 9th, I I, I was so exhausted, as I feel like everyone else in this country was, that this thing that we had been waiting to happen for a year and a half, two years, was finally over. We still didn't know who had won, but we had a good idea, and it was all finally over. And I was so tired. I was so exhausted because, well, if you're anything like me, you've been campaigning for a year and a half. (laughs) Like, uh, late last year, I got involved with a campaign and was volunteering my time and was, was making phone calls and sending text messages and, um and knocking on doors and and doing whatever I could to make myself useful and even got lucky enough to do some really cool work with their digital media department and and that went all the way till March when that campaign ended and then you know the party kind of seemed to line up behind Biden and he became our nominee. So I did a little to to help with that campaign and, and do a little bit of text text banking and, and doing what I can to try and get a little fundraising going and just helping out however I could from home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> Leading into the summer, which I then found myself drawn to run for office myself and try to make some change and try and really empower the voices of young people and those in our communities who seem to always be overlooked and ignored. And so I campaigned for myself for months and was working on that and organizing and working with different people to get our message out there. Uh, August 25th came and we had the election and, you, you know, we didn't, we didn't move on from there. And so from August 25th to November 3rd, I decided it was important to put my voice behind and put my support behind some state elections and some other local races that were going on around in town. And so I did some volunteering for them, you know, uh, went door to door, hanging flyers on people's doors for some of the city council uh, candidates and just doing whatever I could to make myself useful for them. So of course, when we get to November 3rd, it's all over. And, you know, what's next? Well, we don't know. You know, I mean, the election's over, but the work is is far from done. We have a lot to do still. And so I took the week off, as I feel like a lot of us did from life. And uh, so coming in the next week, when I'm going to put the episode up, it's the 17th is when we're going to put the episode up. Well, two days before that, on Sunday, I wake up and um, 
I had had a really hard night of work the night before. And so on the 15th, I wake up and I have a fever. I'm like, oh, that's not good. You know, maybe, maybe my body's just tired. But the fever never went away. Um, and it ended up not going away for 11 days. I basically ran a fever for 11 days straight. And um, so that day I was like, you know what? I'm feeling sick. I probably should get a COVID test because you know, I do work and I'm going to have to work this week and I want to make sure that I'm not going to give this to anybody else, you know? So I went, I got the test and it came back negative and I thought, oh, great. Okay. So I just have the flu or something. Well, that flu or something seemed to get progressively worse and worse and worse until the Friday after the Sunday that I started feeling sick. I was like, I can't breathe. I can't move without coughing or feeling in some of the worst pain I've ever felt. I got to go to the ER. So I went to the hospital and I spent uh, an uncomfortable amount of time there as they filled me up with fluids and, and took x-rays and wouldn't leave me alone. You know, this, these, you know, you know, hospitals are, and they gave me another test, uh, another COVID test, because apparently, and this is something I feel like we all should know is even if you, uh, are showing symptoms and, are feeling the effects of COVID, you can still test negative for the first couple days. So, you know, just because you don't feel anything or you do feel something and you test negative, you can still give it to people. So um, I ended up testing positive for coronavirus and I also found out that COVID had given me pneumonia or caused pneumonia and I got, you know, liquid on the lungs and, and, um, that was, that's not good. That was very much not good. I got some amoxicillin and uh, some other medication that I had to start taking, antibiotics I had to start taking immediately, you know. And so for the next week, I was still very sick and, and I couldn't move. I couldn't eat. It was a disaster. It was awful. And I'm still able to recognize that I was very lucky because there are a lot of Americans and a lot of people all over the world who have had it much, much worse than I have. And I can't possibly imagine how awful that it was or is for them because I know how bad it was for me. And there were people that are in the hospital right now with it. So because they have it so bad, I, I can't even imagine. So we took two weeks off, obviously, for that, because I couldn't move and I could, I, my, I was so short of breath that I couldn't even get out full sentences. So I, I didn't even get to work from home, you know, <laughs> even if I had wanted to, I couldn't do any work. Um, and I just now am feeling good enough and have my energy back enough to work on this show again. So we took a month off and I, I missed doing this and I'm glad that we get to do it again. And this is really great. So it's good to be back. The problem is, is that back is a, is a being back. What, what does that even mean right now? Because frankly, it seems like every day, especially here in Oklahoma, we are setting records for the amount of cases that we're reporting and, and the amount of people who are getting sick and getting COVID and we're moving into the coldest part of the year and, and the coldest months where everyone's going to be gathering inside. And, well, frankly, this is a bad place to be. And it seems like our local and our state and our national leadership refuse to take any kind of steps to help slow the spread of this virus. It's extraordinarily contagious, and the most our governor will do is shut down bars and restaurants at 11 p.m. because everyone knows that at 11.01, coronavirus has a curfew. It's got to go home and take a nap. It seems counterproductive to not shut down our state but restrict businesses from being able to make money for half the time they're open. half lockdowns and restrictions on when places can be open and when they can't without any kind of financial aid for these businesses is only 
going to kill the economy in a bigger way than they were originally worried about. And not to mention in the House and in uh, these representatives that are these senators and these congressmen and women that are supposed to be looking out for us refuse to take any action to help us out. We're relying on people who are lucky enough to live in a way they don't really feel the effects of what this pandemic is doing to everyday people like you and me. And therefore they sit around and they bicker about what bill is the right bill to send through to send money and financial aid to Americans. All the while, they sent us one $1,200 check six months ago, seven months ago. What is that? What did that do for us? Nothing. I mean, I'm not still living on that $1,200. Are you? I can't imagine that that's the case. So what are they doing? They're putting more money into government systems and assistance programs that not everyone, especially poor and especially minority communities, don't have access to. They aren't working for us. They're working for corporations. They're working for their friends and for themselves. And it's disgusting. And I hope that in two years, in four years, in six years, over the next decade of elections, we make a change and we stand up and we make ourselves useful in a way that actually sets us up for success. Everyday Americans like you and me can be successful and can be supported by those that we elect. But until that time, this is what we have to work with. And... I'm sickened. As, as bad as I felt from COVID, I'm more sick by the behavior of those that we've elected to represent us. And that has to change. And now let's get to our show. Guys, with the cold months approaching, nothing honestly sounds better than curling up next to a warm fire. Sipping on a cold, on a cold cup of hot chocolate. Well, it'd be preferable if the hot chocolate was hot, but, you know, either way. But then just really deep diving into, uh, you know, your regular old homicide investigation. And that's where Hunt a Killer comes in. It's a game that gets you off your phone and thrusts you and your friends and family into an ongoing murder mystery investigation. Hunt a Killer is one of the fastest growing subscription boxes in the country, so whether it's game night or date night, Hunt a Killer brings people together by challenging them to decode ciphers and examine clues and solve puzzles. Because it's like an escape room delivered right to your door. And if you're a detective that works solo, hey, that's fine too. Hunt a Killer is designed to play your way. So whether it's alone, with your cat, or with your whole crew. Hunt a Killer has a thriving online community of over 100,000 active members. And these spoiler-free communities help each other solve difficult puzzles and talk about true crime. And I gotta tell you, we here at SoundSooth actually played through an entire investigation as a team once. And it was honestly so much fun. And right now, just for our listeners, you can go to huntakiller.com and use discount code SOUNDSTOOTH, that's S-O-U-N-D-S-T-O-O-T-H, SOUNDSTOOTH, for 20% off your first box. Again, make sure you go to huntakiller.com and use discount code SOUNDSTOOTH for a 20% discount and show your support for the Spare Some Change podcast with Landry Miller. So, ask yourself this, do you have what it takes to hunt a killer? We'll find out at huntakiller.com. Promo code SOUNDSTOOTH. We have a good one today. Uh, this is uh, a conversation that apparently no one really knows about. I didn't know anything. And so I hope you learn something from this and maybe you'll be inspired to help out in some way. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. Uh, Christina Cavanis-Lloyd uh, has worked for the Oklahoma De- uh, Department of Human Services Child Welfare Division since 2011, uh, right after she graduated from OSU. She actually fell into her career in child protective services and conducted investigations for a few years. Uh, Before that, though, she had no experience, no desire to work with children. But because the job is so, you know, uh, emotionally taxing and overwhelming, burnout and worker turnaround is incredibly high. So she decided it was more important to stay the course and continue to do the work. 
And she did eventually transfer into kinship foster care because she desired to know more about all the stages and aspects of child welfare. Uh, She then found herself uh, in foster care and adoption recruitment, where she's been since 2016. And in the eight, nine years that she's worked for the state, she can confidently say that great strides of improvement have been made within the child welfare system, but knows that they still have a long way to go. Uh, Christina actually considers herself to be a lifer with uh, DHS and continues to push for positive change and reformation. And now let's get to our interview. I was in Child Protective Services, so I did investigations, and then I did kinship foster care for a hot minute, and now I'm in foster care and adoptions recruitment. So I could tell you, so the good thing about that is that I can tell you um, from start to finish what, you know, what happens when DHS gets involved, um, what does it look like when a kid goes into custody, um, what happens down the line if they do or do not go home, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, um, and then I can bring it back to what I do about foster care um, recruitment. Yeah, that's great. And um, and then that way, after I explain what you know the the what the different routes are, I can maybe explain these sad statistics a little bit easier, yeah. and maybe people will get it a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. Um... And then I, I usually end with a question of like, I, I always ask, what can I or the listeners, you know, who feel like this is yeah. there, like, you know, whatever, how do we contribute? How do we help? How do we get involved? What, what can we do? Basically, yeah. I know uh, I've been, I've been listening to your, to, I've, I really, I'm really liking the show so far. I like how it's so like, just all over the, like, it's different. Every, every topic is different. And I, I like that. Um, but because there is that unifying what can we do question and so I've been thinking all day I'm like shit where do I even start so I'll have to I'll have to probably it'll probably just have to come to me and I'll probably just have to pick like one thing yeah but I could be like um and then the last thing is uh which is that if like at the end of it if you're like hey I just didn't like that answer or I said something wrong just let me know and I'll cut it out like I don't I don't want you feeling like you said something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. On that note, I can't remember. Can I cuss or no? Probably not. Whatever you want. Probably not a whole lot. Like maybe a tasteful amount of of showing my anger. I don't curse, but you know, I've had guests do it pretty often. So. Well, maybe if I feel like it's justified, I might. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I'll try to make notes. Um, So you want me to mention it? after and be like hey go back and tell me or, and edit that part oh, yeah. out or like while i'm going if you want i'll like if you say it in the middle of the conversation i'll just put down a note kind of where we're at okay that sounds good afterwards you know whatever yeah it I, sometimes sometimes we have to be careful in the way that we say things and explain things to yeah. the public um which is kind of another thing that i'm kind of trying to fix but um, but yeah, there may be something that I tweak wrong and I need to fix yeah. it. Yeah, not a problem. Oh. Okay, so I'll just do a, I'll do a pre-recorded intro and um, I'll get that information from you here at the end. Okay. What you want said and, you know, mentioned of you. Um, and then uh, we'll go right into it. Okay. Sound good? Yeah. Cool, then let's do it. Um, yeah. So first off, thanks so much for doing the show. Um, I know that, I assume your time is very valuable. Uh, <laughs> I mean, probably working in the line of work that you do, it oh, probably it's, a lot of your yeah, life. It doesn't really stop, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about it, I was like, I didn't really, I don't really know anything about this. So I didn't know if it was like, kind of like, because I know a lot of social workers, they tend to have jobs my friends that are social workers, they have jobs that are either nine to five or what feels like 24 seven. And I didn't know if this was like that at all. Right. Well, it, you know, 
the whole re so I, when I was in CPS, you know, a big reason why I wanted to get out of it was because I knew that I was, you know, I was going to get married and I was going to have a kid. And I just simply did not have, you know, the support system to be able to drop everything and, uh, you know, work a case until 11 o'clock at night, because I got to eventually go pick up the kid at daycare, hypothetically. So um, I went into recruitment, but even still, when you're actively trying to find routes and, re and, and ways to talk about it, to try to get the word out, um, yeah, it doesn't stop. And now it's even worse because now we're all working from home. So I feel like, man, I, yeah, it's six o'clock, but I can just go check my email real quick. No big deal. Or, you know, <laughs> it doesn't, yeah. it's hard to turn off. It's really hard to turn off. Yeah, I have that as a workaholic, I am like, yeah, let me check my email. It's it's seven o'clock. I'll check it for one minute and then it's gonna... midnight. And right. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard. I took a week <laughs> off last week and it doesn't matter. I still did stuff. <laughs> that that yeah, that can be difficult. Um, <laughs> um is this like a big is is I guess kids without I don't know exactly how they get into the system. I assume a lot of times it's just um, domestic yeah. issues. Uh, yeah, family. By and, most of the time in, in Oklahoma anyway, most of the um, reasons surround, uh, is as to why a child goes into custody, um, the, a great majority of it is due to neglect. And that's just kind of a blanket term. Um, but yeah, it's it's, it's most, most of the time it's due to neglect. And, you know, it being Oklahoma, uh, drug abuse is so prevalent around here. Um, it's, it's often associated with that. It's not like every single time, but uh, much of the time it is. Um, when, okay, so how it starts uh, is a person uh, feels like something is going wrong with a child. And so someone calls the uh, abuse and neglect hotline. And so in Oklahoma, we are all considered mandated reporters. Um, and the thing about our state is you can call in a referral about a specific child and you have the ability to call in anonymously. So mm -hmm. if you feel like for like if you're a neighbor or something like that and you wanna like, you know, conceal your identity, um, then you can do that if you need to. Yeah. Um, but teachers especially, um, there's, there's a lot of pressure to you know, call in themselves as opposed to, it, it's kind of changing now where they call in themselves um, rather than talking to the principal or something like that and then the principal calling it in. So yeah, we're all mandated reporters. We all call in a referral um, if we feel like there's something wrong with, uh, pertaining to a child. And um, we explain to the hotline, this is so, this, you know, how much or how little you know about the situation. I, I have concerns about this kid. Um, the referral is screened by the hotline and determined whether or not this is enough information to where uh, child welfare needs to respond. Wow. So if it is, then it will be sent to whatever rightful county that the child belongs in or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it eventually gets assigned to a uh, CPS worker, so a child protective services worker. Sorry, you'll learn really quick that DHS is really bad about using abbreviations for everything. And I may start talking my own language. So stop me if I do that. Okay. Um, the, so the, the CPS worker gets assigned this referral. Um, they look at this information and they respond. They'll go to the school most likely, um, or they'll try to meet that child, hopefully in a place that they can do uh, an, in, an, an interview, um, preferably not in the home if possible. Um, so school is really the go-to place during the day where it's neutral, um, but also still controlled. So you're, you know, there's other adults around to be able to make sure that that child is okay. Yeah, yeah. They interview that child um, and then they will interview the parents and then they will interview uh, you know, collaterals, which are basically like references to the parents who, um, you know, are close to them and may know what's going on. Likewise, you're also talking to teachers or medical staff or police or whomever um, may be involved surrounding the circumstances of, of this referral. Um, if the findings are substantiated, 
if we can confirm that abuse or neglect is occurring, uh, then we substantiate. And depending on what that looks like, we may refer them to services. Uh, we may refer them uh, to just, just recommendations of like, you, you should probably go to counseling. Here's the number for family and children's services. You should probably go check them out. Um, or there may be nothing going on. Um, and a, a good example of that is um, I've had quite a handful of, you know, cases where a kid allegedly has a bruise on their butt and I go and, you know, we see the bruise on the butt at daycare or the child goes and gets a medical exam and it's determined that that bruise on the butt is actually a Mongolian spot or just a birthmark on their, on their bottom. And so that's ruled out is what we call it. Um, or it's unsubstantiated where we can't, we don't have enough evidence or enough to show that anything is going on, but we can still in, um, in our report still make kind of a suggestion as to there wasn't enough information, but we feel like there may be a concern here. Um, so if another referral comes in, then we will likely respond to that kind of thing. Um, if we have enough information to where we feel like this child, did you hear that? Nope. Sorry, it was a really loud mo motorcycle. Oh, okay. Um, if we feel like there is enough information for, uh, for this child to feel like there's a, there's an imminent danger. Like we feel like there is definitely going to be something if we do not um, do something here, uh, then we may have to provide an affidavit to the juvenile court. And um, that gets written off uh, or okayed by a DA and by a judge. And um, that may lead for, to the, for the child to be sent to, not sent to, that may mean that the child um, winds up in DHS custody for, for now. Um, so then we'll go back to the home or we may already be there and say, okay, the child's now in DHS custody. Um, and we will ask and say, do you have any family members that may be able to pass a background check that may be able to uh, stay with, you know, have this kid uh, at their home for a little while while we get things figured out. And they may or may not know anybody. Um, and so if they do, then we try to assess kinship foster parents. Um, so that could be grandma, that could be a neighbor, that could be a teacher, um, basically anybody that the child knew before they go into custody that's considered kinship um, foster parents. Okay. Um, if they know nobody, if, um, if there's just no one that can pass a background check, um, that there's no one that DHS, now that DHS is, is the responsible party for this child, um, if there's no one that we deem or that we can say is safe, we have to revert, we have to revert to a traditional foster home, most likely. Wow. And then there's other flavors of foster parents that I can go into later. Um, but then we'll, you know, so then we have to look at a list and see what traditional foster homes are available. Mm -hmm. um, and then that child goes into a foster home while we get things figured out. Um, then there's court and, uh, we determine that there is a problem. The child needs to does or does not need to remain in custody. Most of the time they do, um, again, so that we can get stuff more figured out. The parents are given a treatment plan uh, and they are given time for that treatment plan. Um, all the while, most of the time, there is some kind of a visitation thing set up for the kiddo. Uh, and um, that way they're maintaining a relationship with their family, with their parents while they're working this treatment plan. Um, that may look like six months, that may look like a year, um, especially if we're dealing with, you know, drug abuse, that could be, that's not always a straight and narrow thing. Um, so they're given time to work out this treatment plan and they, uh, can also have the choice to relinquish their parental rights if they feel like they need to do that. Um, or, uh, if we feel like the, dangerous circumstances as to why that child was removed have uh, not changed at home eventually. We, we have to prove that we have exhausted all efforts in order for, uh, for that child to reunify with their parents. And if we get to the point where we can say, judge, we have done this, 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 both hands, uh, we have done these, this many things to try to get this family to back together, um, eventually the judge may determine that it's time to uh, terminate parental rights. At that point, um, 
we can ask the foster parent, the foster family, be it kinship or traditional or whatever, um, if they would be interested in adopting that child. And most of the time they say yes. Um, it's, I don't have a statistic for that, but it's, it's very common, especially at, after that point where kiddo has been in their home probably for like a year, year and a half. They know that kid better than anybody else in the room likely. So they probably would say, yeah, we'll go ahead and adopt that kiddo. And then, um, and then eventually that adoption may be finalized and then the child is legally belongs to this other family and no longer in the DHS system. Um, so that's kind of the, if, if they do complete their treatment plan, then they do um, trial reunification. So um, the kid is still technically in DHS custody, but they go back home. And um, if everything remains okay, well, you know, DHS will check in, make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, make sure that the you know, circumstances have definitely corrected and that child is no longer deemed unsafe. Uh, and, then, and then eventually reunification occurs and the child is no longer in DHS custody there. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the quick rundown yeah. of, of what can happen to um, a kiddo in custody. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of those processes that I didn't even realize were part of that process. I guess ma they make sense logically, but you know, I, I didn't, I don't think I knew that it seems like the job almost becomes like an investigative journalist of trying to figure out, you know, like trying to find leads on what's happening in this house and, you know, who knows what and what, like you said, substantiated and all that kind of stuff. I didn't realize it was so involved. Yeah, there's a full there's a full investigation. It's not just as someone decides, you know, not, it's not like someone walks in and, uh, you know, makes a decision on their own as to why it, a kid may or may not be in the home the next day. So, um, yeah, there, and you have to explain yourself as to why you feel like this child was unsafe and why you felt like you needed to write up an affidavit in order for that child to be removed temporarily from the home. That, yeah, you, it, there's a lot of checks and balances, as there should be. Uh, yeah. in in there so why i guess um why is this job so important and why is it so crucial that it gets done right i guess um oh man you know, that's I mean, a very broad question but i feel yeah. like it's one of those jobs that we don't we don't hear a lot about but obviously it's one that if it's not done properly can be really yeah. bad for someone. Definitely. And, you know, we're working with people here. So it's never, it, for the record, it's never going to be perfect. The way that we do things is never, there's, there's always going to be someone who messes it up. There's always going to be someone who uh, misunderstood the circumstances and maybe misinterpreted it. And, and, you know, maybe it was worse or not as bad as what actually was going on. Um, but again, you know, there's, there's a system in play. Um, I mean, it comes right down to it that we're dealing with people's lives here. So obviously we need to be doing a good job. Um, the unfortunate side of things is that I have noticed um, personally being a worker in a metropolitan area, um, I, it seems like sometimes when things happen, um, somewhere else, like in a rural county or something like that. It seems like often different, different areas of Oklahoma have their own way of doing things. And that's, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be so. There should be a streamline. There should be a, um, a consistent way of going about the, all of the steps. And sometimes there, sometimes there isn't. And um, I think there should be a little more accountability there. How, how I can't imagine how taxing emotionally this job can be. Is that? Oh, oh shit! Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, they, I, I have. I won't. I promise not to get verklempt here. But I have. Um, I mean, I have held little babies, like newborn babies, that have shivered and squealed and and shook because they're going through withdrawal symptoms and they don't know what's going on. Um, I have unfortunately 
you know, had to fill out an affidavit and had to go to a home with police officers and, and had to remove kids from the home that knew something was wrong, but they didn't want to leave because that's all that they knew. And so as a result, they're kicking and screaming and crying. And I'm just, and all I can do is drive and just explain, I, you know, I promise it's going to get better. I'm so sorry this happened to you. It is not your fault. You didn't, you know, um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that you see. And, you know, some, sometimes you feel like you are just completely hopeless and you're like, what am I even doing in this job? You know? Um, but ultimately I, I think the, the good definitely outweighs the bad. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that part then. Cause, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, we see a lot of this work in television, you know, you see it a lot fictionalized and, and TV, so it's hard to know. I feel like it kind of takes away the realness of it for most people. You know, we just see it in episodes of, you know, procedural dramas and stuff like that. And we forget that it's actual people doing actual work, saving actual lives. Yes, child, child welfare as a whole is, is, is often just deemed as so evil and so um, nosy. And like we're coming in at the most inopportune time and trying to tell people like we're the like we're like we're parenting police or something like that. Yeah. Um, but the truth is, you know, this is in place to make sure that kids are safe, you know, and it, that's and but yeah, it's it's really I don't know where I was going with that. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Um so uh, you said that a lot of kids tend to go to, um, I don't remember the word you use, but it's like people they know. Kinship, yes. Kinship, yeah. So Kinship. a lot of kids get moved at least into something somewhat familiar. Um, hopefully so, hopefully? yeah. So okay. just to kind of put things into perspective, um, as of the beginning of November, I pulled some stats earlier. As of the beginning of November, there are, 7,775 children in state custody right now. So from what I could see, 3,247-ish of those are uh, currently placed in a kinship placement. So again, someone that they knew before they went into custody. And then roughly um, a a bit over 2,000-ish are in traditional placements right now. So a traditional home. And then, you know, okay, so what's, what are the other, you know, thousands? So those are in other types of placements, like they're in a group home or they're in a residential facility or they're in a hospital or they're in a shelter. Um, yes, definitely shelters still exist. Um, or they're in um, a tribal home or they're, um, you know, maybe they have um, some kind of a disabilities, you know, some kind of severe disability. So maybe they're in DDS um, or they are, uh, in therapeutic foster care or something, depending on their level of, um, you know, maybe they have some kind of severe um, intellectual disabilities or some, you know, major behavioral health issues or something. So depending on their circumstances, they may be in something other than, you know, one of those two major flavors. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't think I realized how many kids are going through that right now. And that's just in Oklahoma, right? Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a big number. It's a, it's a huge, it's a super big number. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in child welfare since 2011 uh, and believe it or not, that number has gone down quite drastically since 2011. So seven, almost eight grand, eight, almost 8,000 children. Yeah. Uh, that's actually pretty darn good. Isn't that awful? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. I, so, so I also didn't realize there were so many different types of mm-hmm. uh, living situations they could be kind of placed in. And I, I assume for the most of those, it's kind of like a, just like a, a stop on the way somewhere else. Sometimes. Yeah. Um, so the, um, okay. So have you heard of the Laura Dester shelter here in Tulsa? I don't think so. No. Okay. So it, it's up there on pine. 
Um, it was just like a regular children's shelter for a while. And um, in the last year or so, they have converted that to, um, it's, it's actually a treatment facility. So, so the, um, you know, there are children in custody that have, um, you know, multiple, you know, intellectual disabilities or like highly, you know, emotionally un unstable or, or have some major behavioral health issues to where a, a home setting just isn't in the case. It's just not in the cards right now. They need some stability. So um, they go there first and then hopefully they can step down to a um, maybe a traditional foster home or likewise with um, therapeutic foster care. Again, that's kind of a more heightened need. Um, and so hopefully they can step down eventually once they get a little, you know, once they go through some more counseling or maybe they get, yeah. you know, some regulation in their medication or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. They would hopefully be able to step down and go to a less constrictive placement. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, yeah, I actually just realized that I remember I, when I listen to the radio, I probably hear, especially like um, talk radio, I guess, I hear a lot of commercials about becoming uh, like a foster parent, like, um, like, you know, like, uh, I'm trying to think of any of the commercials, but yeah, it seems to be something that I've Likely. been hearing a lot recently. Is that, and that those are like the, I, I don't know what, what the term is, but like, um, and I don't know anything about this, actually, I just realized as I'm trying to even ask the question, I, I have no idea what I'm saying. But, um, but you do have people who step up and say, you know, we can help mm -hmm. raise a kid who has been displaced and needs somewhere. And that does that make up a lot of the cases? I, I don't know anything. <laughs> the, so um, as a foster parent recruiter who works through DHS, mm. um, there's also this umbrella program called Oklahoma Fosters. And their per it was an initiative that was brought on by Fallon and it's, and it's been carried on to, uh, through Stead. Um, it covers DHS and all of the other fostering agencies in Oklahoma. And um, because they're contracted out through DHS. And so, um, yeah, some agencies have more funding to be able to advertise for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, there are, you know, people that go and inquire and, and maybe even start the assessment process um, yep. and then maybe even open their home and, um, and maybe they learn that it's not great for them, or maybe they learn that it's not uh, what their family was set up for, or maybe they get a placement and then that child winds up available for adoption and then they're good. And then they close their home because their home is filled up, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time, uh, when once they go through the assessment process, we fill them up, them up pretty darn quickly. I, wow. I counted that um, the number of traditional homes in Tulsa County alone is about 96-ish from what I can, what I saw, yeah. um, which is less than even I realized. I thought it was more than that. Um, and then, but the number of vacant or waiting homes in, in the whole region that I cover, which is Tulsa, Washington, Rogers, Nowata, Osage, Ottawa, Delaware, Craig, um, like the whole Northeastern corner is my, is my jurisdiction mm -hmm. basically. And out of that whole region, there are about 27 vacant waiting homes. Um, so we fill them up pretty quickly. And I will say in the, those 27, most of those homes are wanting ages like zero to two or zero to three-ish or something. So they're kind of just waiting for, you know, the right kid to come along for them to, that would fit their home um, to get that call and say, hey, we have a such and such year old, would you be interested? And they, they say yes or no, so. How long do um, do kids normally uh, stay? I, I know that's such a difficult question because it's case by case, but yeah, I guess what is what does a timeline look like? Probably generically for a, a kid going through this process. Generically, because you're right, it kind of it just depends yeah. on the circumstances of the case. Um, but I would say 
um, just in my experience, um, it's, it's going to be probably at least a year. Now there's, there's, um, there's some exceptions to that. Like for example, here in Tulsa County, uh, we have what's called nicknamed, uh, there's a better word for it, but we nickname it baby court. And, um, it's that program is basically, um, if you're under the age of three, if that child is under the age of three, um, then we have to show that there has been some improvement uh, and, and working towards reunification within the first six months of that child going into custody. Um, and if not, then we're going to start talking about other arrangements or other permanency options for that child um, pretty soon on. And the, the reasons behind that is because of just the whole zero to three development state, how it's so, so important to, for attachment and, and things like that. Um, and so because of that, we, we have this in place to where we're trying to make sure that that child gets permanency, whether it be with the biological parents or whoever was watching them basically since they were born. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's wow. Um, I'm getting to this question earlier than usual, but not because we're ending the interview, just because I feel like this is, okay. this is the important question. And I think it will. I think we'll have a lot to talk about regarding it, but what can people like, like me or my listeners, what can we do? Is there in terms of awareness and getting involved and in what, what options are there to help? So my, obviously my, my first plug has to be uh, become a foster home, but I know that that's not, you know, it's not an easy thing for everyone to do, obviously. Um, but I will say if any of your listeners have, you know, really sat on it and really thought about it and thought maybe one day, la la la, um, just like with your biological children, um, there's really not a perfect time to have a kid. Um, so if you're in a good, uh, you know, financial space, a good emotional space, um, I, I know that this year has been incredibly hard on a lot of us. Um, but if you've been thinking about it for a while, um, I, I hope that you take this as a sign to, to actually at least make this, the steps to make the phone calls and get the information on what the assessment process looks like. Um, and, then, and then going from there. Um, one thing, you know, with that in mind, knowing that this year is not a great year for recruitment, unfortunately, um, we are still trying to make efforts for recruitment. So um, if there's like an event that you feel is related to, um, you know, and you'd like us to just be there just to answer questions. Again, we don't, we don't get commission for signups. We just are, we just know the, and, and if you'd rather go to an agency as opposed to DHS, I don't care. Cause I'm probably going to wind up calling you anyway, when I'm on call, uh, and say, Hey, there's a seven-year-old. And if I don't have anything on my list for DHS homes, I'm calling another agency. Cause that's how on call works in a nutshell. Yeah. So, um, we just need them period. So um, any kind of event that relates to children, um, it, we would love to be there basically. Um, also retention is an incredible, foster parent retention is so, it's, it's such an afterthought and I don't understand why. Um, supporting our current foster parents is incredibly important. Um, they need to be included as, and they need to be treated as part of the permanency team for this family, for this child. Um, they often feel like they're excluded from the conversation uh, when it comes to, you know, decisions made for that child, um, and that needs to change. We, uh, as a community, can do, I mean, if you, if you know, if, if you have a friend or know someone that is a foster parent, Making a meal for them every once in a while is incredible um, because after visitations, after taking them to the doctor, after taking them to counseling, you know, there's a lot involved other than just having a kid over at your home and for an indefinite amount of time. Um, I am trying really hard to find ways to just show appreciation and to just shameless plug, I am currently doing a, um, a book fundraiser. So it's have, um, it's through Usborne, 
books and more, which is, um, it's like a direct sales kind of thing. Like, you know how people like sell essential oils and things like that. Well, this is, you know, through with kids books. Um, but it's a really, it's a really awesome program. I've bought books for my kiddo through them. Um, and so we are doing a fundraiser and my plan is the, after the fundraiser is over the next 50 homes that we open up in our region, again, all those counties that I mentioned earlier. Um, I just want to say, thank you so much for opening up your home. Here are three children's books to kind of get started in your collection. And it's not just fairy tales. Like I picked out these books and they're, um, they address how to deal with grief. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be scared. Um, it's ex expressing your feelings, that kind of, it, hopefully eventually they may be, you know, just extra tools in that foster parent's toolbox and maybe a way for um, that foster parent to kind of open up a window or something, you know, just kind of open up a dialogue with their new placement maybe. So I'm doing that and I'm, we're halfway to that goal now. Um, and then in December, I'm meeting, I'm, I'm working with um, 181 Ranch in Bixby and we are their um, benefit partner for the year. And I'm trying to just get gift cards, gift certificates, small gifts, things like that for our existing, like our, our longstanding foster parents as um, like door prizes for when they show up. Cause we're doing these online support groups now. We did a lot in person um, and now we're doing them online given the circumstances. And so it's just kind of an easy way to say, thank you so much for showing up and getting more training and getting more information about what you're doing because you know they go through an initial 27 hours worth of training. And I'm sure by the time that's over, it, the information's just coming out of their ears. And so, um, you know, over time they still have to learn more stuff. And so online support groups and just as like, thanks for showing up, here's a $20 gas card. <laughs> you know, I feel like that would be not too hard of a thing to accomplish. Yeah. Um, and I know like a scented candle for thanking them for being open for a year. I realize that that's not going to fix everything, but the point is to just show our appreciation for, cause they're doing a whole lot a whole lot, like I said, a whole lot more than them just having a kid over, you know? Yeah. Wow. Wow. I did. Yeah. I, I guess I, and I assume people at home, they didn't realize how, how many people are involved in this and how important those places are. Um, one thing you mentioned in there that I have not really thought about is the idea of the mental coping that these children are going to have to go through because their houses are being shaken up. They're, they're, what they know is now changing. I never really thought about that until you just said that. Um, is that something you guys help try to train, uh, especially foster parents into doing, or is that just something you kind of say, this needs to be done? And I, I don't really know how that process works. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely part of, um, it's definitely part of their initial training to kind of um, have them better explain. I think a lot of people, a lot of people come in to the situation thinking that they're gonna save some kids and they're gonna save them from their horrible mommies and daddies that treated them so horribly. And, um, and, and while, you know, some of that is true, they come from some, some definitely sad, horrible situations. Um, I think, um, I think people just need to understand that sometimes, um, and sometimes it's a generational problem um, some parents just aren't given the right tools from the beginning to, to know how to take the best care of their kids that they can, or maybe they are, and it's not that great and they just need more resources or they need more support. Um, foster parents during their training, they are given a little, uh, you know, quite a bit more information about how, you know, why it's important to try to bridge quote unquote, and by, and by meaning that is maintaining a connection with the biological family while the child is in custody, be it, you know, uh, be it um, visitations or, you know, phone calls or, you know, like, you know, maybe grandma was looked at as a kinship foster parent, but, you know, maybe she's kind of up there in, in, in the years and, and 
medically speaking, she's just not in a good place to take care of a child full time. That doesn't mean she's a bad person. Um, you know, so we try to maintain connections. Um, and yeah, that's, that's part of the initial training. And I think to try to, you know, gain a little more understanding and empathy, um, about another child's, another person's background. Um, you know, a lot of people that go into fostering come from a place of great privilege and that's wonderful, um, that they're able to kind of share that, um, you know, with, with the child, but I think just better engagement and understanding that the child is probably, even though they're coming from, you know, a potentially bad place, again, that's all they knew in the beginning. That's still their home. So, yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for sharing all that with us. This, this was a lot of information that I feel like. Yeah. I'm not even done. <laughs> I know there's a lot. It's, I know I knew going on this, I was like, I'm going to have to really be careful because I could just spew all kinds of info. And I'm going to say like way too many numbers and people are going to go cross-eyed with all of this info. Cause I know it's a lot, but yeah. as with any info that people don't know, that's the point. Like, like yeah, why yeah. is there so much, like, why isn't there more transparency? Because I feel like if there was more transparency, maybe more people would understand the urgency and the, and the need maybe quite a bit better it's yeah I think you just encapsulate it perfectly which is that um, the lack of education to the public about this whether no matter whose fault that's on or, or if it's on anyone's yeah does does leave an absence of knowing how what like you said how urgent it is mm -hmm. uh, that this kind of stuff is taken care of and it's taken care of properly and that we remember that we're dealing with people which is messy and will never be perfect and I think I think you today very well put that um not only to me and educated me in that but uh, to everyone I think listening to this so yeah that for, so thank you for doing the work you do and for all the people you work with and um because even though you probably don't get enough credit for it the work you guys are doing is super important Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. So thank you for doing the show. <laughs> Thanks for putting me on here. I, and you know, again, if like you want to do a part two later on, cause like I said, I got more that I can dive yeah. into. We can talk about, you know, no, I would definitely love to. We just hit this. Uh, we hit aging my out. What happens if they age out? That oh kind of stuff. God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's definitely do another part of this. Uh, you know, it's um, important to remember as we walk away from this episode and back into a world that sometimes feels so cruel and isolative that we have opportunities every day to make change. As Christina said, this is an opportunity to gain more of a sense of empathy and ownership towards the idea that all kids need someone looking out for them. So if you see abuse or neglect occurring, please call the Child Abuse and Neglect Hotline, which we'll actually put that information uh, in the description here of the show. The work that these men and women are doing is not the work of evil. They aren't here to separate families and divide people up and, and make kids suffer, but rather they're here to protect children because all kids are our kids whether they're in state custody or not. If you know a foster home, show them that you care in ways of just some kind of small support. Help them out in some way. If you have friends or neighbors that have children, get to know them a little because they may need you to be their safe place someday. And then of course, if you feel inspired and, and dedicated to do so, Contact Oklahoma Fosters about opening your home to foster or adopt. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm glad that we're back. We'll be back with another episode next week. But until then, be safe. Be smart. Find a way to make yourself useful. Because we all have an opportunity. We all have an opportunity to change the world. So ask yourself, 
do you have any change to spare?